Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting November 8th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, revealing the truth with body language and putting a lid on the truth by controlling the flow of scientific information. Last week, I was at the annual meeting of the Society for Environmental Journalists in Vermont and went to a panel discussion on government secrecy. Climate researcher James Hansen was on the panel and will share some of his comments later. We'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news, but first up, Mariette DiCristino will make some gestures in your direction. Mariette is the executive editor of Scientific American and of Scientific American Mind magazine. We talked about the importance of body language in communication. Hi, Mariette. How are you? Hi, Steve. I'm great. How are you? Pretty good. So tell me about Scientific American Mind, first of all. It's another publication discreet from Scientific American. Scientific American Mind is a bi-monthly magazine by Scientific American, and it covers topics of psychology and neuroscience. Uh, as I like to put it, while other magazines try to be relevant to their readers' lives, Scientific American Mind is one of the only ones that gets right inside their heads because it helps us learn more about what makes us us. What makes us us? Do we really want to know? <laughs> Maybe not about you, but how about me, Steve? <laughs> okay. So uh, in the current issue of Scientific American Mind, there's a, there's a really interesting report, a series of articles, three articles, how your body reveals what you think. One is on gestures, hand gestures, body gestures. One is on facial expressions, and one is about lying. So this is really interesting stuff, how that kind of goes along with verbal communication and what the, what the observer slash listener gets from it. Right. It's it's interesting to me, Steve, that even as you're talking to me, now Steve is sitting right across from me in this room. I know you listeners can't see this, but he is spinning his hands and showing me as he's talking more about what he's trying to tell me. For a long time, scientists thought that our gestures were simply outgrowths of such speech, but in actuality, they help complete what we're trying to say. Gestures, the telltale signs that our bodies give off, as we, you know, sweat anxiously under a question or smile at ease. All of these are tip-offs to what we're really trying to communicate to our listeners. So are you putting things like perspiration on the same level as gesticulation? Because they would seem on the surface to be really kind of different. Well, we did carve them up into three different articles, right? One of them focuses on gestures, which, um, you know, which at first might seem to just be things that follow what you're saying. But in actuality, the... Um, the information that starts in the brain and leads to gestures can precede what you say. So you're tipping off to your, to, you know, to your listener what you're about to tell them or helping to frame what you're about to say. And one of the really interesting things in that article was about how the gesture will either slightly precede the word or will be coincident with the word, but it'll never be right after the word. And maybe that's the difference between somebody who's lying or or an actor that you don't care for maybe there's something that just doesn't ring true about what you're seeing and it's really in terms of the gesture and the the vocals not going together and you don't appreciate it consciously but some part of you is registering it as being false you're right. In some senses, we all have these built-in lie detectors so that if we're watching an actor, to use your example, and this actor is wiping his brow after a close call, but first he says, wow, that was a close call, and then he wipes his brow, to you as the audience, that makes no sense at all. And you're, you're right. You have this built-in lie detector. 
And the, the same goes with the whole article on expressions. There are, there are really thousands of these tiny little facial expressions that you're always reading without really realizing it. Right. I find these micro expressions so fascinating because, uh, well, this is the work of Paul Ekman who pioneered this in the sixties and later. And micro expressions that you mentioned, these are very tiny facial movements. They can last as little as a fifth of a second. And yet in combinations can convey to the person across from you exactly what you mean or show that emotionally you have some kind of anxiety or problem underlying what you're saying. And some people, security people, legal personnel, have studied this with Paul Ekman to try to get tips on whether somebody is, for instance, really making a, a confession or not really making a confession. The, the work is a little bit tricky because there's nothing unambiguous about facial expressions. One of the keys, Ekman says, is to ask people what they're feeling, what are your emotional feelings, not just what happened on the night of the 12th. Because the, the feelings and the gestures will either have to be more closely connected to be true or if they're, it'll be easier to recognize if those don't go together for some reason? Well, microexpressions specifically yeah. react to along with your emotions, and they help convey your emotions to anybody who's looking at you. You know, uh, they, they can show, for instance, that you have a fleeting feeling of desperation if you're talking to the doctor and meanwhile saying everything is fine. If you're educated about how to read these things, that's an emotional tip-off that maybe you need to ask another question. Interesting. Now, what about what about lying and body language? How much of that is really scientific, and how much of it is is kind of junk science? Right. Well, here are two two things that are sort of dovetailing. I'm going to separate them out for a minute. When you speak of lying, perhaps you're talking about lie detectors. Yeah. This sort of famously rather discredited in in many circles uh, machines, which can tell such things as racing heart rate if you're nervous or that you're perspiring because you're nervous. The problem with things like those polygraphs, which were uh, first pioneered in the late 30s and, and later, is that just being hooked up to one can make you nervous. So that's a false signal. Of course. And another problem is if you were now, Steve, to ask me instead of, we're having a very friendly interview, but if you were to start asking me probing questions, I might get nervous. That doesn't mean I'm lying. So those detectors were a little tricky. Nowadays, we have some really intriguing new research that indicates other biophysical uh, reactions that the body is having to questions. Do they really add up to being able to tell what somebody's thinking or trying to think? It's kind of hard to say. So if it's kind of hard to say, what what do you get out of it? You get some subtle signals, uh, which I guess is all we're ever going to get out of communication with another person anyway. For instance, there's a researcher who's working with MRIs to uh, try to detect what's called a guilt knowledge moment. With the MRI, you can see if somebody in their decision-making areas of their brain is suffering from kind of some kind of a conflict or if their brain is trying to resolve a conflict. However, that doesn't really tell you that that person is lying necessarily, just that they have some kind of conflict. And the other thing is, if you can imagine a suspect that you're trying to question, I don't know how many people who are listening have had an MRI, but you have to sit awfully still and be very cooperative. So they can give you tips, these kinds of devices, about what uh, what kind of activity is going on in the brain or the body, but they're not foolproof. And we're really still in the very earliest stages of that kind of research. Very earliest stages. I mean, we've made great progress in 50 years, right? But we have great progress to continue to strive toward in the future. One of the really interesting things I remember in the article about 
gestures was that in some ways they're not cross-cultural, that in some languages the place in the sentence, the word in the sentence at which you'll make a particular gesture is different from where you'd make the gesture in another language. And so it's interesting in bilingual people, by observing very closely where the gesture is taking place in the sentence, you can tell what language they're thinking in rather than what language they're necessarily speaking in at the time. There's a researcher named David McNeil at the University of Chicago who has studied these gestures as windows into thought processes. And what you're mentioning, Steve, is exactly one of those windows. For example, as the story mentions, a person speaking in Spanish who's talking about somebody climbing up a ladder would emphasize the verb with their body gestures and would be showing you. And right now, it's funny, it's, it's almost impossible to stop myself. I'm making a climbing gesture. She is. I will, I will <laughs> attest to that. In contrast, somebody who's speaking English like we are right now or German, which is a very real, you know similar really, uh, language, would tend to say somebody is climbing up the ladder and put the emphasis on the up and thrust the hand upward to indicate direction, which is something you can do so well with a gesture, indicate direction or shape of something like that. It's really interesting. It's uh, the special report, How Your Body Reveals What You Think, in the current issue, the October-November issue of Scientific American Mind. Thanks, Marriott. You can also look for Scientific American Mind at www.siammind.com. Siammind.com. Go there now. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Steve. Thanks, Marriott. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, a British perfume company is coming out with a new fragrance called Gravitas to honor Isaac Newton. The key scent will be apple spice. Story two, researchers have come up with a more equitable system for cutting cakes. Story three, mice with slightly cooler body temperatures live longer. And story four, people who use anabolic steroids are more likely to be involved in behaviors like fraud and weapons possession. We'll be back with the answer, but first, climate researcher James Hansen is the director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. He was on a panel about government secrecy at the meeting of the Society for Environmental Journalists that I attended last week in Vermont. Here are some of his comments. One of the points that I want to make uh, relating to stealth concerns something that uh, has a big impact on me and on the research, uh, not just by our group, but by throughout the nation. And that is uh, a retroactive 20% cut in the earth science research and analysis budget, which the um, executive branch made uh, in uh, the middle of 2006, made it retroactive to the beginning of the year. It, there was a I think a four and a half percent cut in the earth science budget, but they specifically, not on NASA's initiative, but on the initiative of OMB, uh, directed that it should be a 20 percent cut in um, research and analysis, which funds laboratories like uh, Goddard Space Flight Center and universities around the country. And that's a going out of business cut because there are infrastructure costs which will take up most of the 80 percent. But uh, this, um, you know, this is a little strange because I, my understanding is that the Constitution says Congress is control the purse strings, and it's not to be made in a, 
uh, cuts to be made in a report of the administration to Congress, which is not noticed by anybody. In addition, uh, the fray in the same budget uh, item that retroactively cut the budget, there was a removal, there was a change in the NASA's mission statement. Uh, we had spent a, long, a good deal of time iterating among NASA employees about our mission statement. And the one concerning Earth was, the first line of the NASA mission was to understand and protect the home planet. That line disappeared in, by executive action. And I ask dozens of people, NASA employees, if they knew about this, including my boss, nobody had heard about it. It was simply done between uh, OMB and the administrator. And uh, uh, that's an example of the sort of thing that's going on. And it, and it, but it seems to me they're taking over responsibilities, which in the case of the budget really are supposed to belong to Congress. Later, Hansen was asked how much the change in wording and the funding cuts would hamper climate research. Oh, it, it will have a, a huge impact because, you know, we're, we're just we're getting missions uh, that begin to tell us very interesting things like the gravity satellite, which shows the mass of Greenland is decreasing. And there is uh, very little money for any new missions. I mean, the NASA Earth Science budget has been declining now for several years. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, non-negligible. It's a very serious cut, and it's going to have impact on our ability to know what's going on with the planet. Tom Yulesman of the Center for Environmental Journalism asked whether the current administration's attempts to control the flow of scientific information for political reasons were different than past administrations, and if so, how? The problems with the information flow did not originate with this administration, and I've had difficulties with prior administrations, including Democratic administrations. Uh, for example, if you submit a paper which to the, you know, each agency has a public affairs uh, office. And if you want your scientific results to become available to the public, you have to go through the public affairs office. If you submit a paper now which says that, oh, I've discovered that the ocean doesn't take up carbon dioxide as effectively as we had thought it did, then in the present administration, you know, that report will end up in the wastebasket. But that sort of thing happened with prior administrations. Uh, there's a, apparently a, a feeling that they have the right to uh, influence what gets out to the public rather than simply let it be based on scientific um, uh, results, but it, it's become qualitatively different, and, it, and it's more, it's worse situation now than with prior administrations. For example, <laughs> it got to the got to the extent of having a dry run of press conference, and um, I would not submit to such a thing. But one, my one of my colleagues went to one is to be a press conference on Arctic sea ice and the fact that it's decreasing uh, quite rapidly. And uh, a qu trial question was, 
well, what can we do about this? Is there anything we can do about this? And uh, my, uh, my colleague said, well, we could reduce the rate of emission of greenhouse gases. The guy jumped up and said, that's unacceptable. So, because this relates to policy, and you're, a scientist is not allowed to say anything about policy. Well, <laughs> um, anyway, and, and, for, and when, I, when I gave a talk uh, at last year at the AGU meeting, and uh, it got a, a lot of attention, which surprised the public affairs officers at NASA headquarters, then, then uh, I was told that from then on, any time the media contacted me, I had to first inform the uh, public affairs office. I could not I could not speak to the media until I had informed them, and gave NASA headquarters the right of first refusal if they thought that it's a sensitive question and they would prefer that I not answer it. Then they're allowed to answer for me, and uh, and also they demanded that I give them my schedule every, you know, so at that point that's when I decided I was going to make this public. Um, and, and now I don't have, have that uh, problem. And, and the, the, uh, the, the NASA administrator came forward and made a very strong, clear statement that scientists should be allowed to communicate with the public. But the paper on, the, on which uh, the, the actual statement, if you look at the new rules, they're really very ambiguous. And in NASA, I think we feel comfortable that we're just going to take uh, the NASA administrator at, at his word at face value. And, and, uh, but in fact, uh, the global, the, the government accountability project in looking at these new rules sees there's a lot of problems with these, and they can still, uh, use these new rules to, to squelch what you want to say. And it depends upon the quality of the person of the person in charge. And at present we have a good administrator in NASA. But that's not that's not necessarily true in other agencies. I'm Nancy Basilchuk. I'm a freelance writer and conference chair. If you uh, if you had have you any sense of other agencies where this is a particularly a problem where folks are being censored? Uh, well, yeah, I already had made a comment in a talk at the New School uh, University that I, I felt the situation was even worse in EPA and NOAA. And, you know, of course, you have to be aware that 90, probably 99 point something percent of the scientists are doing technical things which are not going to uh, be of concern and are not going to be uh, uh, limited or censored because because they don't cause any impact on policy directly. Uh, so I was a little worried that when after I made that statement, uh, but as it turned out, uh, uh, there were some scientists that came forward and and mentioned that they had had. Ex experiences comparable to mine in those agencies. And since that time, I was also told by some people in the National Institute of Health uh, that they, they were very constrained in what they were allowed to say um, in, in areas that you can imagine. Uh, so I, and I think EPA has, for a long time, has had problems in that they've lost many good scientists just because of those constraints. They don't want to work for an agency in which it's so strong, the, the information flow is so strongly controlled by the administration. 
Hansen has an article on these subjects and more in the current issue of World Watch magazine. If you just Google James Hansen, H-A-N-S-E-N, his personal page comes up, which includes links to that and other publications. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, perfume to honor Isaac Newton. Story two, improved cake-cutting methodology. Story three, cold mice have long lives. And story four, steroid use associated with antisocial behavior. Time's up. Story four is true. A study in archives of general psychiatry found that steroid users were twice as likely to be convicted on weapons charges and had a 50% higher likelihood of a fraud conviction. For more, check out the news story on our website, www.siam.com, titled Swedish Study Links Steroid Use to Crimes. Story three is true. Colder mice had longer lives, according to a study published in the journal Science. You can hear more about chili mice in the November 3rd 60 Second Science, the Daily Siam Podcast. That's at siam.com slash podcast. And story two is true. A mathematician, a political scientist, and an economist walked into a bar. No, those are the three guys who teamed up to publish an article on cake cutting in notices of the American Mathematical Society. See, you can't just cut some cakes in half and have both parties feel like they're getting equal value. For example, let's say the cake is half chocolate and half vanilla. I love chocolate. You hate chocolate. Obviously, there's more to making us both feel satisfied than cutting the cake exactly in half. Anyway, I recorded an interview with Michael Jones, the mathematician on the team, and we'll play that on an upcoming episode. Episode. All of which means that story one about the Newtonian perfume called Gravitas is totally bogus. Also bogus is a perfume called Enigma to honor Alan Turing. For a more comprehensive list of phony perfumes named for scientists, check out the anti-gravity column in the current issue of Scientific American. It's free for nothing at the website www.siam.com. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Scientific American Podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Check out science video news and actual written news articles at our website, www.siam.com, and sample the daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 